you have the capacity to um, grow brand new brain cells in this memory creating area of your brain. I'm not trying to sell a, uh, uh, you know, a workout program or pill. Um, this is the power of movement for your brain. One of the easiest things that all of us can do to get the benefit of brain plasticity is literally just walk for 10 minutes. Welcome to the 21st episode of Apple Finch Pudding, your gateway into the world of science. Today's scientist is Wendy Suzuki, a professor of neuroscience and psychology at New York University. Wendy is one of the leading researchers in memory, and her work has led to some amazing findings about the link between the brain and exercise, some of which we'll discuss today. She is also the incredible science communicator who authored Healthy Brain, Happy Life and Good Anxiety. Furthermore, she had a fascinating TED talk about the link between exercise and changes in the brain that went viral. Welcome, Wendy, and thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Before we delve more into your research, do you have a fun fact for our listeners? A fun fact. Yes. My fun fact is that there's a structure in your brain called the hippocampus. And this is one of only two brain structures in the entire human brain where brand new brain cells can be born in adulthood. So you and I, I'm assuming it's all adults. I don't know how many kids listen to your... It's mostly <laughs> adults. Okay, mostly adults. So all, all your listeners, you have the capacity to um, grow brand new brain cells in this memory creating area of your brain. So that's my fun fact. That is an amazing fun fact. And I think something we all want, we all want to yes. uh, have better memories. Um, and actually, why is it only in, in those areas? Do you know that? It's unclear. I mean, some have speculated that these are just vestigial areas, and and um, uh, but nobody has a clear answer to. So, one area is the hippocampus, is very critical for memory. My favorite area of the brain that I've studied for many years. The second brain area where new brain cells can be born is your olfactory bulb, critical for the olfactory sense. So. Um, uh, there's there's no clear rhyme or reason, but we do know these are the only two uh, brain areas in the adult brain uh, where you can grow new brain cells. Before we delve more into the link between the brain and exercise and neuroplasticity, uh, maybe we should define what memory is, like what are memories and what's the difference between short and long-term memories and can a short-term memory shift towards a long-term memory? Sure. So... Um, there are many different kinds of memory. So I'm going to focus on a form of memory uh, that many call declarative memory, which uh, are memories for facts and events. Uh, some people call that cognitive memory as well. It's it's what we most commonly think of as, as memory. You know, my, my favorite birthday, uh, uh, the best present I ever got. Those are, those are declarative memories for facts and events. And those are the kinds of memories that are dependent on my favorite brain structure that we've been talking about since the beginning, um, the hippocampus. So uh, the, the hippocampus is critical for your ability to form long-term memories that last. Um, and uh, if you ask how long it it um, uh, 
it's uh, it's a tricky it's a tricky question. So uh, memory from uh, what I had for breakfast this morning. So I can tell you what I had for breakfast this morning. What time it is? It's two o five in the afternoon. I remember that 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 is a long term memory. Without my hippocampus, I wouldn't be able to. Um, uh, remember what I had for breakfast this morning. Um, that contrasts with kind of immediate memory. Uh, if if I see that you're wearing a black T-shirt on our Zoom today, um, uh, you know, just just the brief memory of or vision of that will will uh, allow me to remember that for a short time. But unless I focus on it, unless it's you know critical uh, uh, or, or relevant for me, um, it will it will not kind of make it into the longer term memory. So so uh, I, I think the important thing is that we're I know we're going to be talking a lot about the hippocampus. Um, the these long term declarative memories that are dependent on the hippocampus. Um, I think the important thing for your readers to understand is that. These are such important memories because they really create and define your own personal history. Our whole history of ourselves, our self-knowledge, our self-history is defined because of this brain structure. You have one on the right and one on the left. So they're kind of two structures. Um, and without them, you know, would you be the same person if you didn't have any memory from the pandemic? No, I mean, I have, you know, life-changing memories uh, of of cleaning my apartment a lot on, in the pandemic uh, that that would make me a different person, but but um, seriously that that is why I, I emphasize it because that's why I got fascinated with memory long ago when I first started studying neuroscience. Like how how could it be that sometimes just a a, a moment you know um, we remember our first kiss. It probably didn't last that long, but uh, in you know the physical aspect of the kiss, but I still remember it ha after so many, so many years. And how could that be? What what are those uh, neuronal, neuronal and um, molecular changes that happen that create a memory that can last for decades and decades and sometimes a lifetime? So that's that's why I'm fascinated with this form of memory declarative memory dependent on the hippocampus. You already mentioned a few times that you love the hippocampus. Did you yes. love the hippocampus first or were you more interested in memory and then discovered that it's part of the hippocampus? You know, um, I I think th that's an interesting and, and difficult question. I became fascinated with memory and the hippocampus, like many psychology and neuroscience students before me when I heard of uh, the very, very famous neurological patient, patient HM, who had terrible epilepsy studied by a groundbreaking neuroscientist, neuropsychologist, Brenda Milner, um, in at the Montreal Neurological Institute is where she continues to work. I think she's 105 or 106 years old by now. Um, and uh, she studied this patient who um, had terrible epilepsy. And at the time, just as today, some uh, the, a common uh, cure was to remove one hippocampus on one side where uh, epilepsy might've been starting. But his epilepsy was so severe, they decided to re remove both hippocampi at the time. They didn't know what the effects would be. They were just trying to uh, lessen the severity of his, of his epilepsy. Well, the good news was, the severity of his epilepsy went significantly down after 
the uh, removal of both the hippocampi. But the terrible news is that they realized soon after he woke up that he was no longer able to form any new long-term memories. So as I said before, he was no longer able to record anything more in his own personal history. He was 27 years old. He, he, he passed away when he was in his 80s. So during that time, he became a, a willing but very, very valuable uh, subject. And, and just hearing about that and kind of his sacrifice and and everything that we learn, I mean, it wasn't suddenly that that this happened and, oh, now I understand hippocampus is so important for all forms of memory. It took many years and very systematic analysis to, to come to the deeper understanding that we have today. But it was really that, that science story that drew me into both memory and, and the meaning of memory in our lives, but also the importance of this brain structure, the hippocampus, kind of all at the same time. I think it's really important also what you mentioned and really interesting that we are who we are based on our memories. Yes. And even if we think we have a bad memory, it's still what defines us. And that's, yes. that's a really interesting point that you're making. Yes, um, it, it does define us. And when we go into neuroplasticity, so it has long been thought that the brain is more or less static once once we're of age, when, once we're adults, that this turns right. out not to be the case. Yeah, um, yeah. But there are different types of neuroplasticity. Maybe you can give us some insights on that. Sure, sure. So let me start with just a basic definition of brain plasticity. So brain plasticity is the the brain and particularly I'll, I'll focus on the human brain's ability to change and modify its wiring in response to the external environment. How you live and, and what your experiences are can, um, can change your brain circuits. And again, as you, as you mentioned, absolutely true early on, it was thought that, you know, there's, there's change in the brain um, as you're growing up during development, but once you reach adulthood, no change, no, no possible change uh, could happen. And um, uh, it's really uh, even more than the hippocampus in memory. It is that function of brain plasticity that, that was, was an early draw for me in, in neuroscience uh, because I happened to study in the lab of the woman who discovered brain plasticity. Her name was Marion Diamond. She was a professor at uh, University of California, Berkeley for many, many years, uh, both a groundbreaking neuroscientist as well as an extraordinary teacher, probably the best teacher I ever had in my entire career. And um, she she uh, uh, she entered science at a time um, where not only there were very few female neuroscientists, but the idea was just as you stated, once you get to adulthood, there's no possibility for change. We have no evidence for any change that could happen at all. So so you all you're set to do is lose brain cells eventually when you get old. That's a little bit depressing. And she thought, hmm, I well, there's no evidence. What what kind of experiment could we do to start to explore this a little bit more? What is that intervention that we want to ask? Could it could it actually change the brain? And I'm going to give you her intervention and then an intervention of another group that was working at, a, at the very same time. And her intervention was um, 
first she she and her colleagues asked, well, what do we think might might be a positive brain circuit generating kind of uh, uh, activity? And so she thought about the environment and the environment that we live in. And so she created what she called an enriched environment for rats. They, they were uh, These experiments were being done in rats. And so uh, she gave the rats that were living in this cage toys and other rats and changed the toys out. I'd like to call it a uh, uh, kind of a, a rat Disney world, uh, um, rat cage Disney world that she let them live in. And she compared the brains of those rats living in Disney world with brains of rats that were living in more of an impoverished uh, regular rat environment, maybe one other rat and no toys, but uh, you know, both had free access to food and water. And she let them live there for about three months and then she looked at their brains. Is there any difference? Is there any any difference that we can see? These, these studies were done in the 1960s. And lo and behold, for the very first time, using her anatomical technique, she was a neuroanatomist, she showed that the outer covering of the brain, the cortex, actually got significantly thicker in the rats that were raised in the Disney world of rat cages compared to the other rats. And that was a physical change. I mean, no, it's not like they grew like a conehead rat. It was small, but significant and reproducible. And that was the first demonstration. Did people believe her? Of course they didn't. No, uh, scientists are very skeptical and they, they, you know, uh, they, they poo-pooed her uh, results for a long time until Everybody else started finding the same thing. Oh, it's true. The other uh, um, experiments going on at the same time, just to give you a second example of brain plasticity, again in the 1960s, used the opposite approach. And this was the experiments of Nobel Prize winning neuroscientist um, Hubel and Wiesel, who uh, studied and, and learned uh, and demonstrated so much about the uh, basic functioning of the visual system and what they showed is that if you uh, remove one eye and, and all the visual input to one eye, so this was instead of enriching, they, they damaged part of the brain. They showed in adults, they showed that the um, uh, connections from the other eye could grow and shift into those brain areas that were first being processed by the eye that was removed. Another beautiful example, a Nobel Prize winning uh, example of brain plasticity. So these studies show that there are positive things that you can do. You can raise your rat or your child or yourself in the Disney world of rat cages. I've often asked myself, am I living in my own personal Disney world? And to get the brain plasticity that Marion Diamond showed, or they could show that even after brain damage, uh, that's also actually a, a very uh, um, positive and inspiring kind of result, uh, showing that brain damage can lead to uh, plasticity of a different kind. And these were just the first two that came out. And basically so much of all the other neuroscience experiments that have been done between the 1960s and now have been various, not all, but many, so many more examples of this kind of brain plasticity. That's so interesting. That's amazing. But there are also those links between, in my head at least, between neuroplasticity and damage. And I assume there are, I know there are limits. For example, in the in, in the in the case of HM, they removed part of the brain. This is not able to regrow. So do we have some idea of what the limits are 
of neuroplasticity? Yes, we do have um, knowledge of the limits. So, so despite the fact that it was the hippocampus that was removed in patient HM, and in fact, it wasn't the full, they thought they got 80% of the hippocampus. It was more like 60% of the hippocampus on both sides. And so there was some hippocampus left, yet he had devastating memory loss that never came back. I mean, they, they, he was the best studied memory patient of all time. And from the time he was 27 until, until his death, um, uh, th they tried hard to see whether he could, um, uh, um, create a new memory. And there was a teeny, tiny little piece of evidence that, um, he seemed to recognize that there was a famous princess in England. And he, he seemed to be referring to Princess Diana, who came to prominence long after he had his hippocampal removal. Did he watch TV? Did he watch the news? Did he read the newspaper? Yes, he did. Um, so, so that was the only little hint. Now, could he tell you, you know, lots of details about? Could you tell her name and who she was married to? No, not all of that. But that suggests that there was a little some something got in there somehow, but it was very, very limited. So that's that that gives you some of the of the range. Let me give more optimistic um, uh, findings. And, and that really comes from some of the work that I've been doing. Um, and what I want to share is is um, the powerful finding that movement, physical activity that you think that's weird, you're moving your muscles and you have a brain effect. And the answer is yes, because with movement, you are literally changing the neurochemical milieu of your brain. You are increasing certain neurochemicals, neurotransmitters, growth factors. And those growth factors, some of them go directly to the hippocampus and help new brain cells grow. Um, but uh, uh, one of the easiest things that all of us can do to get the benefit of brain plasticity is literally just walk for 10 minutes. 10 minutes of walking has been shown to significantly decrease depression and anxiety scores. And um, uh, uh, those, those studies are, are done in humans, so we can't go into their brains and see exactly what's going on. But other studies suggest that that is because movement, uh, uh, movement or rats on a running wheel, it releases dopamine, serotonin, noradrenaline. Does that make you feel better? Yes, yes, it does. Does it decrease anxiety and depression? Yes, it does. So that's something that every single person listening to this podcast right at this moment can do today to bring more brain plasticity into, into their own life. 10 minutes of walking is what you can do to give yourself some positive brain plasticity. 10 minutes walking a day, that should be feasible for everyone, I assume. Exactly. And so I guess 10 minutes are maybe more or less the minimum. Is there also some kind of upper threshold? I mean, are the brains of athletes like amazing? So um, I've always, my my dream experiment is to, you know, follow young Olympic athletes kind of through not only their Olympic training when, when it's very, very intense, but through the rest of your life, their lives, because they often stay active uh, through the rest of their lives and compare it to controls that are not, that are not. Olympic athletes, but I haven't done that study, but I have done a study looking at people that were um, low to mid fit to start with. And we gave them access to as many spin classes as you want a week, go, go crazy, you know, as many as you want, uh, but you have to stay at your kind of minimum. Don't, don't stop 
working out at all during the study, but you can go up to seven times a week. You know, we'll give them all the free classes that you want. And um, the result there was that um, I like to summarize it as every drop of sweat that you dripped uh, during those workouts counted. That is the ones that, that worked out seven times a week, they had the biggest improvements in mood cognitive function. So there, there was evidence of hippocampal function, memory improvement. Uh, we haven't even talked about the prefrontal cortex uh, right behind your forehead that is also very sensitive to um, exercise and, and uh, the growth factors that and, and neurochemical changes that happen during exercise, um, but mood changes. So the ones uh, that worked out a little bit more, they got a little bit more benefit. The ones that worked out a lot more got a lot more benefit. And then everybody always asks, everybody's always worried, what if I work out too much and I damage my brain? Wendy, can I do that? And the answer is theoretically, but I think that that would only happen if you are a hyper super Olympic athlete that pushes themselves so much that they damage everything. Their muscles are, you know, starting to explode. They can't, their lungs don't work anymore. They're that, that can't be good for your brain. Very few of us can get to that area. So, so that's good news, right? Whatever we're doing, whatever level you're doing, you're doing something and that whatever more you do, that gives you something more. I think that is a positive message and it, it's something available to all of us that starts with that 10 minutes of walking that we could that we could all do i agree that is an amazing message because we all want to or we all should exercise more and more is better in this case yes exactly does the type of exercise matter and i mean you have different you have power training or cardio but you also have the difference for example if you go for cardio between running or spinning and i'm thinking that in a sense that if you run maybe you you jump a little so your brain might shake a little when you're spinning you're more stable does that have an effect it's only minimal i know yeah i i don't i don't know of any studies that have suggested that the the kind of uh, uh, the the movement in running can have any damaging effect on your brain um but uh that's that's a really interesting question um what I can say is that we know the most about the beneficial effects of aerobic activity. Anything that gets your heart rate out. I don't care if you're spinning, you can do whatever unusual, you know, heart rate increasing activity that you like to do. And believe me, people have come up to me with their favorite exercises. Like, have you ever studied some weird exercise I've never heard of before? <laughs> Sorry, I, I haven't done that. But 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 then I always ask uh, the the equalizing question: Does it get your heart rate up? And they always say, well, most of the times they say yes. Great, we know that that movement types um, uh, that get your heart rate up are are beneficial to all these things we've been talking about: mood, memory, hippocampal, growing new hippocampal cells, uh, um, making your prefrontal cortex work better. Which, by the way, doesn't happen because there are new cells. Uh, brain cells being grown in the prefrontal cortex that looks like uh, um, it could be uh, changes in the um, axon outputs of the neurons there, uh, as well as each neuron could have more connections, not more neurons, but more connections, which is another way that uh, better 
better function might might come around. Um, so so um, however, I'm also uh, I, I would be remiss if uh, I didn't um, acknowledge the fact that there are uh, there's more data coming out of um, the uh, the people that live in the so-called blue zones that have great food, great social connections. They say, okay, do they do soul cycle or do they do some other workout? You know what? They walk, but they walk all the time. They're doing physical things as part of, it's often part of their environment. They live in um, hilly areas. So every walk outside, they're not taking the car, they're scoot, they're walking up and down the street. They're getting up and down off the floor. Um, that kind of activity, uh, not not that is not a study that I have done. That is the outcome of of these um, studies. That that uh, um, it's not hundred and bad cognitive performance. It is these people are living to a hundred and more uh, with very good cognitive performance. What are they doing? They're hitting all the high spots. So um, you know we're we're in a culture. Uh, um, with uh, that, that has all these great options for high intensity cardio workout, which is beneficial, absolutely. But maybe uh, uh, walking. That's why I like to start with the ten minutes of walking. Uh, um, uh, it's not uh, bringing activity into your lifestyle is beneficial. I'm not saying exactly how many workouts you have to do, but walking is cardio as well. So. Uh, um, uh, so it's uh, the main point is these are doable things that uh, um, but it can't be something. OK, I'm just going to do it in January. Is that, is that enough? No, you have to incorporate this into your life. And it's as simple as, you know what, I'm not going to take the car as much as I, I need to. I'm going to get off. I live in New York. I'm going to get off at the subway stop one before I really need to and add that walking to my day. I, I'm lucky because I live in a walking city that helps, but there's so many different ways that, okay, I'm not going to take the cab, even though I really feel like taking a cab, I'm going to walk. <laughs> All the small things together that make the difference. Yes, really. That is very, very powerful. It's not required a very expensive gym membership ship and all the fancy clothes that go along with it. No, walk more, be active, go on walks with your friends, with your dogs, around Costco, around the museum. So many places uh, that, and it's all free. That That's the other thing that I like. It's not, I'm not trying to sell a, uh, uh, you know, a workout program or a pill. Um, this is the power of movement for your brain. You say the heart rate is important. So is there a minimum that your heart rate needs to be elevated before you get those benefits? It does seem that there is a uh, a threshold. Nobody has that exact threshold. So getting your heart rate up, uh, whatever way you want to, you know, it's it's not going to be a formula like, oh, you have to do this particular workout in this particular way. Um, getting your heart rate up is important to getting the release of the growth factors that will change the structure of your brain long term. Do that enough. And you will have what I like to call a big, fat, fluffy brain. That's what I'm going for. So into older age, I want the biggest, fattest, fluffiest brain that I can get. And, and so 
every time I make a decision to walk or take take a cab, that contributes to to my my the fluffiness of my brain. It sounds like a brain you want to hug or something. So a fluffy exactly. brain. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and do you know if there's a difference? For example, you can exercise daily, but is there a difference if you do it daily for half an hour or daily twice, 15 minutes, like in the morning and the evening? Yeah, you know, um, I can tell you for sure that while those are critical questions, the effects of that, particularly on the brain, have not been done. I think that that has been studied more in the realm of cardiovascular health and you know what's best for getting your heart in great shape. Also great, I, I'm a fan of the heart. I just happen to have studied the brain for my entire career. So, but but we don't know the answer to that, uh, whether it's good or bad. I mean, I, I like to say that it's very practical, uh, this work. So um, get more of it, uh, get as much as you can, um, do it whenever, wherever you can. And if you just think about ways to incorporate it more into your lifestyle, that is more important than, ooh, I have to do this kind of workout for exactly this time. Do it when you can, whether it's in the morning, at noon, at night. Everybody has their own schedule. Everybody likes to work out at a particular time, even, even if, I mean, this morning was a great example. I did not want to work out. I had to, I had to push myself to, to do that workout. Even, even me, that, that uh, you know, I, neuroscientists are human too. Um, but did I feel better? After that 30-minute cardio and mobility workout, yes, I did. And like I, I was thinking about that as I walked into work. I'm so glad I did that this morning. So everybody has days like that, but fit it in when you can. Make it make it as easy for yourself to do as you can. But you did push yourself, so you did do it. I did. I did. I succeeded today. <laughs> <laughs> and that is part of your morning routine, I assume? Yeah. So my goal is that seven days a week for uh, 30 minutes, I do uh, cardio strength slash mobility. Sometimes I, you know, uh, um, once or twice a week, I'll do some sort of mobility or yoga workout. But my main workout is cardio strength. So cardio with with weights. I really like it. It makes me feel great. I like the 30 minutes because for me, um, and again, this is this is me. Everybody has to find their own uh, uh, um, zone. Um, I love it that I could push myself for 30 minutes. It only lasts for 30 minutes. Uh, and then the next day, I'm not so sore that I can't do it again. Uh, and so um, that's why I give myself seven days a week. Now, do I do it seven days a week? I went up to a birthday party. I traveled this weekend. Did I work out in that same way? No, I didn't. But that's okay. Because in my regular day to day, I come back to that seven days a week. And um, uh, because it works for me, it, it's like if I if it's part of my everyday morning routine, I will do it. And that 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 habit formation is very, very important for anything you want to do meditation, working out, eating right, uh, eating healthily, I should say. So, yeah. Yeah. So you try to fix it all in habits. Uh, do you have some tips on that for our listeners to how, how do you fix it into a habit? Yeah. You know, I, um, I, I just do, I just try and find ways that bring me joy. And so, um, 
it, it took a long time. I was going to, you know, regular gym classes that were 45 minutes or an hour. And I did that for a while, but it got, I would be a little bit too sore the next day to do it every day. And then, and then, and then when you get a little bit busy, you're like, oh, okay, I won't do it today. I'll, I'll do it tomorrow. So, so I, I slowly, slowly came to this, let's do it every day. And, um, uh, and then I did it. I, I switched to video workouts instead of gym workouts. So I can choose more clearly the, the exact duration. Um, and I found the teachers that I, I I'm a, I'm a great, uh, um, enthusiastic follower of particular teachers with a particular kind of energy that really motivates me. And so I found out, I, I enjoy it when I, even if I want to struggle and I, I, this morning, I didn't want to do it. I enjoyed the teacher. I had taken classes with this teacher before, and, um, uh, I know what I like and, and that is always helpful rather than struggling against, okay, I'm supposed to do this. And, oh, I really, I actually, I don't like this. I, I do like the workout. So find something and it doesn't have to be traditional workout. Maybe it's gardening. Maybe it's dancing. Maybe it's uh, uh walking power walking with your best friend or a power walking alone with a podcast. So many different ways that you can do it, but find something that you, you truly enjoy. And based on that answer, I also assume that it doesn't, matter what you do in between for example if you listen to a podcast or music while exercising you know that i don't think that has been studied but i will say that another great form of positive brain plasticity is learning cognitive learning is good for your brain i mean i'm i'm a university professor you know uh my 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 last class that i took was how to build a big fat fluffy brain because i know that that my class and all the classes of my colleagues is strengthening the brains of all of these these students so um uh, again that has not been studied but theoretically uh, uh that is that is a good thing and in your book, you also talk about, yeah, so when you went to the gym regular, regularly, you followed classes like Intensati. Can you yes. explain how that's different from other exercises and why it might be important? So I went to the gym one day and um, I had a choice. It was, a, I had just started going to the gym. And so I didn't have my favorite classes. And I had a choice one night between cardio boot camp that sounded just scary and this other class called intensati that that sounded uh intriguing I, it didn't sound scary so i went for the non scary one and it turned out to be this lovely class this might turned out to be my very favorite class that i've ever taken uh intensati was developed by an amazing fitness instructor named patricia moreno and she um combine these two things that are a lovely combination. Uh, physical movements from kickbox and dance and yoga and martial arts with great music. And, and so it, it's a, it, it's rhythmic, it, it's a little bit dancey, but the thing that she added that was so powerful is that every move that she offered us was um, associated with a positive spoken affirmation. Things like, I am strong. I believe I will succeed. I am inspired. Um, uh, um, I'm, I, I'm joyful. Um, um, and so we would be shouting out these affirmations as we were, you know, doing the moves and, and remembering the sequence. So it was a little bit of a memory test as well. And, uh, I, I love, well, okay. First I felt idiotic 
you know, yelling out these affirmations. And then I got into it. And uh, then it was really fun. And uh, I realized that it was an extra kind of um, um, kind of cardiovascular boost because it's harder to run and talk at the same time than run and not talk at all. So, so that extra uh, um, shouting, uh, the extra affirmations was making it actually a, a, a tougher workout. So um, that's the form of workout that I, I fell in love with. And um, I've studied a little bit, but not enough to say, oh, this is absolutely better, but I've done it enough to know that it's very motivating it's it's fun uh talk about how to form a habit and i said i found things that, that bring me joy that that workout brings me joy every single time i take it every time i teach it uh because i came became an instructor uh an intense at instructor so that's what really got me to stick to the gym at that moment in time when i had uh when i needed to go to the gym regularly i had become a bit of a couch potato so and it's also inspiring because you mentioned now that you became an instructor and how you really developed. Actually, you learned to be an instructor to give a class and afterwards give theory in that class. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Because it's an amazing story. So um, I, I, you know, I chose Intensati over, over cardio boot camp, And then I started going to this class and I loved it and I couldn't wait. And I kept doing it, doing it, doing it. And um during this time, I, I really got into shape. And so I lost a lot of weight that I had gained because I became a couch potato. And um, I uh, and so I was feeling good and my mood was great. And, and I, I was just feeling really good. And um, I realized that that my writing seemed to be flowing better during during this time, the peak intensity time in my life. I'm like, wow. I mean, my memory, I, I was studying memory in my lab at that time. It's like, my memory is, is better. I wonder, I wonder what's going on there. And this was the only major change in my, in my lifestyle was, was this regular gym going. And it didn't happen overnight. It wasn't, you know, couch potato. And then the next day after one intense Ati class, it's like, oh my God, I could write. It, it was, you know, a year and a half. I got better and I, 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 I worked out harder and harder and I was feeling really, really strong. And that's when I noticed it. And that's what made me the card carrying neuroscientist as a, that I am, go back to the literature and ask, well, what do we know about the effects of aerobic exercise on, on the brain? Um, and so that's when I, I, delve, I started to delve into all the work showing that, um, in fact, starting with my own professor, uh, that um, exercise not only improves cortical thickness, as she showed, but hippocampal function, memory function is better, mood function is better. And it's like, oh my God, those are all the things I'm noticing. That That's what I'm noticing. Well, that area, there were still a lot of unanswered questions. And so I thought, hmm, well, what's the best way to learn more about this area? That's kind of related to my area in the hippocampus, but, but I didn't know nearly as much about the effects of exercise. So I decided to teach a new undergraduate class because I always have to develop new classes. And so I, I entitled that class, can exercise change your brain? It was just a kind of self-directed question at myself. Can exercise, is exercise changing your brain, Wendy? That's the question that I asked. And so it was going to be just a regular standard class where we all come in and talk about all the literature uh, about what the effects of exercise on the brain are. 
But I thought, you know, it was inspired by me going to the gym and, and feeling these cognitive benefits of exercise. Wouldn't it be fun if um, I could I could find an exercise instructor to come in and we'll all exercise together. And uh, I thought, oh, that's a great idea. So I went to my department and I said, hey, can, can I get some funding to to get a teacher to, to do this innovative new exercise class called Can Exercise Change Your Brain? And they said, no. So I said, oh, okay. Um, they said, well, you're the instructor. You you have to teach the class. There's no extra funds for somebody to help you teach the class. So I thought, oh, well, maybe I'll go and learn how to teach the exercise part of the class. I'm the teacher. Maybe maybe they'll pay for my teacher training. So I went back and I asked, I, I, I have an innovative new class. I want to do extra professional development to learn how to teach this class. Um, could you help me with that? And they said, yes. And so they funded me to go to the gym and to... Um, uh, uh, um, learn how to teach intensati. And then I um, trained and trained and trained because it's actually a kind of a hard class to teach because you have to cue people and and uh, uh, you have to remember the whole sequence. Actually, that's the hardest part. Um, but um, I, I did that and I practiced and I practiced and I practiced. And somewhere in the middle of that practicing, I realized that I could I could test my students. We we're going to all exercise together all semester. I should test them cognitively at the beginning and at the end of the semester to see whether there's any difference. And that would be part of their analysis. They would help analyze their own data. And so the Can Exercise Change Your Brain class was born. And uh, I had to, uh, but then I had to teach the class. I, I mean, I had never, I'd never taught an exercise class before. I just took teacher training. And so my very first official class was with a whole bunch of um, uh, very opinionated NYU students. And I was I was pretty scared um, because I walked in and um, uh, they, so they knew they were gonna exercise in class. But I think that first day was the first moment they realized that they were going to exercise with me, their professor. And so, you know, the classroom was cleared of all the chairs. They were all in their workout gear and I walk in in my Lululemon. And they're like, oh God. I mean, th th there was a lot of nervous laughter. And um uh uh they looked they looked really scared. And I was scared. I was really nervous and I was in my Lululemon. And uh, but I stood up and I did it, and you know, it was a wonderful barrier breaker to actually work out with the students and sweat and say positive affirmations together for a whole hour before before the class started. So once we got over the awkward laughing at the beginning, um, it was it was really good. And uh, I also thought I wouldn't make it through teaching the class and then teaching the lecture for an hour and a half after the class, but it turns out that the workout kind of energized me um, and, and like it pumped us all up. I think the whole class too. Some of them, the first time it was a nine o'clock class and uh, some remarked that they didn't even need coffee before the beginning of class because they got to work out. So that was a good sign. Um, but that was my foray into studying exercise. And um, I, it took a few years, but I ended up shifting my whole research program to studying the effects of exercise on the brain because it it has so much impact on on millions and millions of people and and there's so many answers that we still need including the answers to the questions that you asked 
what if you do uh, 15 minutes in 15 minutes versus 30 minutes? Uh, wh what is the effect of aerobic, non-aerobic? What if you do weightlifting? We don't have the final answers to any of those questions, but we can say exercise is good. And we know a lot about the actual neurobiology of why uh, that movement that you're doing is, is changing the brain. So, so there's lots of positive results that have come out. I think that story also very nicely illustrates your devotion to your research. And it's so nice to hear because you, you hear so, so much passion about your work that everyone becomes excited and wants to do it as well. We all want to exercise now. <laughs> I hope so. That's, that's the goal. That's the goal. You also have a paper I want to mention briefly. Um, so it's actually, it's a review paper that you co-authored, The Effects of Acute Exercise on Mood, Cognition, Neuropsychology, and the Neurochemical Pathways. That's a paper from 2017. So that's actually, yeah, it's a review paper. So it's a, a condensation of, of literature. Can you say some of the most exciting things that you read and maybe some things that you think, ah, this is something we need to tackle in the future? Yeah. So, um, you know, it, 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 it's so fun to do a review paper because you really get to delve into the details of um, people that are doing work related to you, but in, in a broader way, usually you read, you know, very, very close to your uh, uh, exactly what you're doing. And the review paper lets you kind of take a big, big view. Um, it was inspiring to see all the work that had been done on everything from neurochemical changes that happen after a single workout to um, electrophysiological changes that have been that have been measured. My lab uh, started to look at um, um, EEG measurements uh, after after workouts as well. Um, and it's it's all uh, it's all consistent with this idea that there are um, clear changes in brains even after a single a single workout. And so we wanted to start there because um, um, in a sense, that's where everybody starts. What 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 you know? Everybody can work out once or take one ten minute walk, uh, um, as we started out this conversation with. Um, but I think what this raises is uh, the next obvious question, which is how do you string together all of these beautiful, amazing effects that happen after a single workout, and and what does that look like? in a lifetime. Um, everybody asks like, what if I do it for three months and give up? How, how long can I stop? And still, you know, will, will I maintain those benefits for the rest of my life? And the answer is no, what comes up must go down. So you, you maintain it. And if you stop working out, are you gonna maintain that muscle mass? No. Are you gonna maintain your, your brain benefits? No, you have to keep going. Not that you're on this terrible treadmill that will never end, but, but it is a lifelong, um, change and that that going back to some of the uh, um, observations from the um, blue zone studies. Um, th these are not, you know, on January I, I go to SoulCycle and then I stop. These are lifestyles that these communities share that lead to longevity and good cognition. And exercise is part of it. Um, food, I'm sure we haven't talked about that. That is not something that I I study directly. Is it important? Of course it is. 
the brain is part of your body and and is um and it is uh, uh affected very much by the fuel that you put in your in your body um and uh, uh the other uh thing that has been getting so much wonderful press is the importance of social connections um as one of um the most important if not literally the most important um factor for a long, happy life. Um, and it doesn't mean that you have to have uh, um, 100 friends. It means you have to have a set of friends that you could really count on and talk to. And that says a lot in, in our culture where uh, there was a lot of isolation during the pandemic, particularly for our young people. And um, the importance of those connections and face-to-face, -face. we're on Zoom, but you know it would have been even nicer to be in the same studio uh, to talk to you today. It does, I, I love Zoom and it's, it's so powerful, but it does make a difference to be face-to-face -face and have that social connectedness. Our, our, there's so many circuits in our brain that were evolved for that social connection to read you and to read your emotions and, and um, to, to read our own perceptions of how we're feeling uh, with uh, particular people. So uh, that's also a very, very important part of, uh, uh, and, uh, of a healthy lifestyle and important for your brain. Being in, in the same physical room, it really makes a conversation easier because yes. like you said, you can read each other a little more and you understand each other a little better. But because yes. of the distance, we have to do it through Zoom today. Yes, yes, it's uh, uh, it has definite benefits, but but you know uh, there there are lots of occasions where you can take advantage of that face to face. If you have to mention one thing, what is one of the studies or something you discovered that you're most proud of? I think uh, of um, the recent studies in exercise. I am most proud of. The study that I mentioned um, that that kind of said exercise as much as you want. Why? Because it was it was more organic. The ones who exercise exercise more. You know, I, I didn't force everybody to do exactly the same thing. And this strong relationship was shown that that again I I uh, uh, I simplify to saying every drop of sweat counts. Um, now. I would want, I want to go farther. I love this exercise, uh, this study because, um, um, because it's inspirational, but it also leads to important next studies. So um, that this what happened to be spin, uh, spin classes. Uh, um, I would love to uh, do something even more organic with, with the walking. If walking is as powerful as some of these studies uh, uh, suggest, um, how can we, look at that what what are the brain benefits that we see and what are those uh kind of uh goal posts for how much walking if that is the only thing that you have to do and you don't have uh all of the fancy gyms that you have around those practical questions i'm i'm you know at nyu i'm always asking what is the practical questions that will ask that will help my students brain function get better so that they can learn all this stuff that they're here for only four years and they have access to all this amazing um, research and professors and teachers. I want them to take full advantage of that. What can we do as a university to help them do that better? 
I like my every drop of sweat count study because it it it's launched me into thinking about these very practical questions to help particular groups and in this case college students. And when you say every drop of sweat counts, that's also something that people remember. They will remember the results of your study because of that one sentence. <laughs> Although, can I say that so many people, after I started saying that, people have come up to me very worried saying, I don't sweat. Does that mean that it doesn't count for me? <laughs> no, seriously, there are, pe there are more people than I would realize that don't sweat easily. And um, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that sweating is what, yeah. <laughs> it's just an easy way to refer to effort of workout. Uh, so just to clarify for those of you that are not big sweaters, that, that, that this does count for you and it's the kind of aerobic effort, but it's just a catcher phrase to say. Yeah. <laughs> We're all comforted now that it's okay. We don't have to sweat. That's right. Has there been some research on more or less epigenetics? Like if you take care of your brain and you exercise regularly, does it affect your offspring? So um, that's funny. I um, There have been sporadic studies that I've seen uh, that have started to explore epigenetics. In fact, my senior thesis in college was a study, even though that term hadn't been coined when I graduated from college. But what it was, was back in Marion Diamond's lab in those um, Disney World of Rat Cage experiments, I was analyzing an experiment where they put pregnant mother rats into the Disney World of Rat Cages and looked at the effects on their children, on the on the offspring that were born from the mothers. And the results that I, I wrote up for my senior thesis showed that the brain percent changes, the cortical thickness changes, which were the main um, uh, measure that they were focusing on at that time, were the biggest that they had ever seen in the offspring of the mother's that were enriched. And so um, that no molecular biology at all, no genetics. We, we didn't look at, you know, whether it shifted, uh, you know, different genes from turning on and turning off. But that was an amazing study that all pregnant women might be interested in. You know, yeah, I'm not saying, uh, <laughs> um, check with your doctor before you, <laughs> you know, you do a vigorous exercise while pregnant. But um, because the brain is plastic and you have such control when the baby is in you, you know, the womb, uh, over, over that, you know, those rats, lots of social interaction, lots of new physical environments um, uh, that really affected the brains of the offspring. I think that that is uh, also another optimistic, um, uh, beautiful finding from, from this line of research. Yeah, and it suggests suggests a lot of potential actually for improving the brain also of maybe your children or just, yeah, if you can give, I think most parents want to give their children like the most benefit they can. So sure, yeah, sure. Did we see differences or do we know of differences in the hippocampus from great thinkers like Einstein or other people? Well, it's funny you would say that. Um, turns out my undergraduate advisor, uh, the one who discovered brain plasticity, also did uh, the first study on the neuroanatomy of Einstein's brain. 
And um, there was no overt difference in particular brain areas, but what she found was uh, differences in the number of support cells. So there's two types of cells in the brain, um, neurons, which are the brain cells, the workhorses of the brain, and support cells that are called glia cells that we now know are doing much more than, than support. They they also have uh, uh, very, very um, important functions for the brain. But Einstein seemed to have a higher proportion of those support cells in his brain. So, so intriguing. We will never know um, what, uh, what that means. Um, a follow-up to that is that while these are not Einstein's, um, they are people with highly superior autobiographical memory. Um, and that was a uh, discovery of, of this category of people from my colleagues at UC Irvine. Um, and now there are uh, over a hundred people that that are categorized in this area. So you think, oh my God, they must have gigantic hippocampi, right? But it turns out that they do have brain area differences, but it's in another brain area um, called um, uh, the striatum that is important for habit memory, habit memory. Um, so so uh, the, the, the motor uh, kind of focused memory so that you, you can automatically put your key in your in your lock and and do it without even thinking. That that's a good example of uh, habit habit kind of memory. And it was shocking that it was that form that that brain structure that seemed to be the most different in these people with highly superior autobiographical memories. Um, uh, um, I would say that that you know. I, we are still studying memory. We we know a lot about it. We do not understand all the differences. This is a fascinating population and those studies are still going on, but there's still some intriguing, so many interesting brain-centered mysteries that, that that's why there's over 30,000 neuroscientists uh, in the world that go to our annual meeting. So um, uh, lots of people are, are working on it and fascinated with it. And maybe we can improve it also a bit with our exercise. Yes, absolutely. Before we close off, do you have a take-home message for our listeners? My take-home message is that everybody has it in their power to um, create a big, fat, fluffy brain in themselves. Um, it is, uh, it's based in science. It is easy to do. It doesn't, it shouldn't cost you anything more because you can start with just walking and, um, the brain is your most valuable possession uh, that you have. And and uh, so I encourage you to make it the biggest, the fattest, the fluffiest that you can. This was the 21st episode of Apple Finch Pudding. I want to thank Wendy Suzuki for the information. Let's meet again for the next episode of Apple Finch Pudding. Mm -hmm.